This is Reimagine Law, a podcast about legal education and careers to help students navigate their career choices. Welcome to episode 16 of Reimagine Law. I'm really pleased to be joined by a couple of guests today who are going to help me explore the topic of what is a solicitor's firm as a business? What do we need to understand about how it works commercially? I'm joined today by a couple of colleagues, uh, Gillian Cobb and Chris Wald. Gillian, would you like to just introduce yourself briefly and tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, thank you for having me, Nigel. I'm delighted to be here. I did a master's degree originally um, and have somehow ended up in law firms for a significant part of my career. Um, And I'm currently the finance director at a large US law firm. Um, And I've previously been at two other law firms, um, which I've enjoyed immensely. And Chris, just a brief background from yourself, please. Well, my first degree was uh, history, (laughs) but um, I went on to do an MBA. I worked for some PLCs. Uh, My focus was either training or finance. I worked for a firm of accountants, a big firm of accountants for some years. And then I started specialising in consulting to law firms, Um, sometimes consulting work mainly in finance and sometimes mainly running courses for law firms. And I've been doing that for an awfully long time. Thank you. And that's, that's, of course, where you and I first bumped into each other with my, with my role of designing and uh, running some training programs in, in the law firms I was in. Julian, if we come back and just think, if we get straight into it, you know, I, we're trying to help our listeners with some thoughts around what does a law firm, how does it work as a business? How does it work commercially? If we were thinking about the real nuts and bolts of this, you know, how does a solicitor's firm make money? Sure, Nigel. And that's kind of the big question for any partner because they're interested in how much money they get to take home at the end of the day. So sort of rolling it back to the the real basics, um, lawyers in law firms will do work for their clients. And in order to kind of record what they're doing, they will be writing down or recording in the system how many hours they are they're doing, how much work they're doing for their clients, um, and specifically how much chargeable work they're doing. And ultimately, we then take all of those hours that people have worked for a particular client, we have assigned um, a rate, a sort of billable rate to each of those hours, depending on how much experience somebody has. So a junior lawyer will have a much lower rate than a very experienced senior partner. And we might multiply those up to get um, basically the charge that will be put on the invoice that goes out to the client. And that ultimately is the income for the law firm. Um, When we determine those billable rates, we're looking at building that up, not just kind of um, how much should the law firm pay, but we're looking at, you know, what costs are going out of the door. So ultimately, you're kind of starting to think about a profit margin. So we get get the income and then we're taking off a good number of costs. The two biggest costs for a law firm are the wages that we pay to our people. So we pay salaries to all of our lawyers who are employed by the partnership and all of the support staff. So people in the finance department, in HR, in marketing, the people in the IT team that run all of the computers that everybody uses these days and ultimately once you take off all the money that we're spending out of the door we end up with a profit. Gillian it just made me think that as you say one of the things we're talking about are almost the overheads I'm thinking in this pandemic world Covid people thinking about the structure of the sector in the future I guess this is quite a live a live changing aspect in terms of you know, as you say, the salary, there's overheads like the offices where these people are occupying. And there's been all this debate, hasn't there, around, um, you know, around are people working at home more? What does the future of the office look like? So 
I guess this is something you're thinking about probably in the firm a lot looking forwards. Absolutely, Nigel, you're right. And, you know, firms, any firm, not just a law firm, is always looking at what costs they can remove from the business, what what costs can be cut. And there's very much a lot of thought around, you know, what the future of the office is, you know, how much do people need to be in the office? And even if people still want to go to the office and we want to be able to meet as teams in the offices, does everybody need to be there every day? And can we move to more flexible ways of occupying office space and therefore for overall need less space because if not everybody needs a desk every day you can end up with people sharing desks you know the familiar concept of hot desking or you have hubs you know there's lots of different models but it could ultimately mean that um, offices can become smaller for any given size of organization and therefore we will hopefully pay less for that office space um, which would then improve the margins I'm sure there are lots of other discussions around, um, you know, the social impacts of reducing office space. But ultimately, in terms of, you know, just the cost, then, yes, that's that could be a real winner. Chris, just to just to come to you on that, perhaps. I mean, I know you you work across the sector, you work across different sectors, actually, and with many firms. Are there any sort of trends you see in that in the way firms are thinking about how they structure as Gideon's begin to talk about the overheads and that whole area of the commerciality of the business? Well, no, I think uh, Julian is absolutely right. And of course, it's early days and there's other developments on the horizon which will influence um, the whole cost structure of a practice. I would like to return to your first question, though, which was um, how do law firms make profit? Well, profit maybe could be defined because we're talking about a partnership rather than a normal incorporated business. But um, think about the basics of how law firms make profit. They're selling time to clients, that's the first principle, and that means that um, they've got to build good client relationships. Um, when you look at the breakdown of income that a law firm has, most of the income will come from doing repeat work for clients, so that something you've done for them before, they'll need again, and so it may be some real estate advice or tax advice or whatever it might be, and they'll come back to you for that. Um, another important source of income is extending what you do for clients. So if, if they're a client of your corporate department where you do lots of financing work for them, you would like them to come back to you perhaps when they have commercial litigation that has to take place as well. And that means you can extend what you do for them. And, of course, the other revenue that um, law firms have has comes from um, winning new clients. That's only a relatively small part of typical income actually winning new work from new clients. But basically, all this means that um, one of the prime aspects of law firm success is, first of all, you have to be good at what you do. Secondly, you have to be very good at building and maintaining client relationships. And this is why when law firms look for uh, people they, they would like to train as solicitors, they're going to be looking for people that they believe can pass exams, can be technically excellent, but also have the right interpersonal qualities to um, get on well with clients, potential clients, and with fellow team members as well. Chris, you've just touched on a, a few things we've spoken about in some of these episodes already. Absolutely, the skill sets as well, as you say, which are really, really critical, and that whole roundedness uh, of skill set. And, and Chris, thanks for drawing, drawing us back to the client aspect of this as well, because as Gillian, I think we'll come on to this in a little while, this whole thing of how you work with clients, which is really interesting that you, you know, you've been telling me um, a little bit about. Um, 
I suppose just just one thing, and in terms of almost that that profitability, Chris, as, as you say, Julian, if we come back to almost the, the thing as you say, you know, so we've done our charge, we've done our invoice based on all their time. Um, then I suppose there's a further phase, of course, which is about getting the money, getting the money in uh, as well. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that comes into your role and your world? Yes, absolutely. You're right. Um, the piece of paper that says how much you owe us is worth nothing if they don't actually pay us. So, you know, many law firms will have a credit control department or maybe members of the billing team will do some credit control, which ultimately is ringing up clients and asking them to pay their bills. Um, partners will also get involved in, in that activity. Um, and again, coming back to Chris's point about um, client relationships, you know, that, that relationship with your client is key to ensuring that they do pay their bills. Um, and it it can be a tricky conversation and some partners struggle with it, which is why they'll sometimes ask their credit control team to look after it for them. Um, but ultimately, getting that money in the door is the only way that um, a law firm can survive. And, and we do have financial metrics around that collection. You know, we'll look at how long it takes us to collect bills. We'll look at, you know, the, the discounts that perhaps have to be applied to get the money in the door. Sometimes a client will turn around and say, well, I don't want to pay the full bill. Um, I'll pay you 90 percent. And so, you know, there's leakage during that process. But ultimately, then, yes, we get we get the money in the door. And as Chris alluded to, there's then this concept of, you know, what is profit, um, particularly for a law firm versus a corporate? Um, and ultimately, the profits that are left after paying for our office space and the salaries of actual employees, all of that money is left for the partners to divvy up. Um, and there are lots of different um, models for different law firms, and they'll have different um, types of partners. But ultimately, the partners will all have a certain share in that partnership, um, dependent on perhaps how they've performed in a year dependent in a lot of firms on how senior they are, how, how long they have kind of served time either within that business or within another business. Um, and ultimately, we just simply divide up the profits and each partner gets their share. And so pretty much at the end of every year, I mean, there's, there's a bit of timing and, you know, payments do sort of get spread over a certain period of time. But ultimately, all of the money that you make in a particular year in a partnerships gets paid out, um, unlike a corporate, which will retain lots of profits. They may pay a dividend, but they very rarely pay out all of the profits in a particular year. Um, and so it's quite a different model for a partnership versus a corporate. Um, and that can um, provide some challenges. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, Gillian, it raises a couple of points, and Chris, I'll, I'll bring you in on one point that I know you and I have discussed in the past. Gillian, one thought is, as firms need to think about how they innovate and change their business models, which a lot of firms are having to think about at the moment, given all these new types of legal service providers coming in the market. As someone once put it to me, they said, you know, you, you must think that the firm is not a bank. As you, as you said, Gillian, we, they don't, you know, keep a big chunk of profit. And it's been interesting to see how some firms have been thinking about do we need to keep a little innovation pot? Because we need to think about how do we build new types of services as well as, as the clients are asking for different things as, as we go along as well. So that was one thought about how we almost, as you say, it's almost a, a, a sense of short-term and long-term perspectives, isn't it? Certainly financially. So that was one thought. And Chris, just to bring you in on a, on a related thought, which was one thing that Gillian said there made me think almost about the culture in the firm, the sense of a collegiality, as you say, Gillian, obviously it's a partnership as well. Um, Chris, you and I have talked about this in, in the past, but I'd love to hear your views on how you think almost the finance and the commercial side links to that sense of almost what, what it feels like to be in, to be part of a firm. 
Yeah, I think perhaps it's necessary to go back a stage and think about the difference between working for a conventional corporate and incorporated business. Um, an incorporated business is a large entity which is funded by having shares on a stock exchange, so it has a big external interest, which has an influence on the management of the business, ultimately. A law firm, most law firms, big law firms are partnerships, uh, now limited liability partnerships. And that means that they are owned by, it's an internal ownership, the partners own the business, the partners individually are technically not employed by the business, they're the owners, they're self-employed, and they're rewarded through the profit that the business generates over the course of its operating year, whenever that cash is in to distribute. Now, um, that's the fundamental difference between partnership and incorporated businesses. But there is a big cultural difference as well. In incorporated business, there is pressure to deliver short-term profitability. And there's also that pressure in a partnership because the partners need to be remunerated. But perhaps there's a difference in that the, partners, the partnership structure is also a long-term entity. It's like a family of people. Most partners will have trained in the practice, will have qualified in the practice. They become partners, they become entrepreneurs, part owners of the business. They've invested in the business. And in a large firm, that partnership will, will be managed. So people progress through the partnership. They retire at a particular age. They may come in when they're five, six, seven-year qualified lawyers. And the businesses will try and regulate the partnership, which means their view is that it's a long-term entity. If you are a, a partnership and you then incorporate and you now have a significant external ownership, it does change the dynamics. If you start to employ as um, an alternative business structure, uh, senior people within the business um, who may well also have a share interest in the incorporated advisory business, a lot of their drivers will be short-term. It'll be for short-term returns. Their career horizons will probably be they work in the business for two, three, four, five years and then move on elsewhere. And so you're losing some of this collegiate, long-term um, aspect of running a partnership. I've actually talked to several finance directors in big firms, and they've all said this. Why would they incorporate? They would prefer to run the firm as a partnership and have this long-term sense um, of investment in the practice. Fascinating, Chris. Yeah, I think that's so interesting, especially because, as you say, this opportunity now firms have to create what's called an alternative business structure, as you say, the ABSs that were uh, allowed under the Legal Services Act. And as you say, what comes, what comes with that if you decide to get outside investment, as some law firms have done, as, as we know. Um, so that's an interesting choice. But again, what impact does it have on the culture? What impact does it have on people's careers and the career path and what it feels like to be in the firm? I think that's a really interesting question. Can I, can I just perhaps you want to define what alternative business structure means? It's something that was introduced by the Legal Services Act 2007. And it simply means that um, it's no longer the case that only qualified solicitors can own a firm of solicitors. The big change was that then the ownership could include non-solicitors. And so a lot of big firms did become ABSs, but basically so people like their finance director could become a part owner of the business because they're key to the success of the business. It also meant they could have senior bankers, insolvency practitioners, financial advisors working 
at this kind of partner level within the business as part owners. So that's one form of ABS. Another form of ABS is that firms like Gateliz and DWF have actually incorporated. They've issued shares on the stock market and become PLCs, incorporated businesses. And the other type of um, ABS is where other businesses acquire um, a legal entity or build a legal entity like CLS, the Cooperative Legal Services Business, like uh, PwC are doing, like um, KPM are doing, and so on. Thanks, Chris. Now, that's important for our listeners to, to understand that. Gillian, if we come back and think, looking ahead, as, as we've said in the, in, in the podcast so far, lots of things are changing in terms of, we mentioned how we work with clients on the commercial and financial aspects. I think you were saying to me um, about how, for example, technology is coming into this, this world a little bit as well. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. And, you know, sort of going back to what we were talking about earlier around the billing aspect and the collections piece, one of the things that we've seen, and it's been around for a while now, but it's sort of increasing out there, is a concept called e-billing, electronic billing. Um, And it's really a way, it's really designed for our clients, for their benefit. Um, It's actually quite painful for a law firm because of the technical um, stringencies around kind of file formats to um, load bills into this e-billing system. But it's really aimed to increase the transparency that clients get as to what they're spending um, on legal costs. Lots lots of firms that engage, you know, large firms of lawyers spend an awful lot of money on that. And it can be quite hard to analyse that spend. Um, But certainly the e-billing systems allow um, much better transparency. um, And they ask firms to categorise all the work that they do so that um, they can see almost hour by hour what work has been done for them and at what cost. And they can use that to potentially compare different legal advisors, or at the very least, just keep better on top of their budgets, um, what they're spending on law firms. Because I guess, Jim, that's really important. You've mentioned transparency there, and there's been this big drive towards efficiency, transparency. And I was just thinking, you know, the firm you're at, I guess often you're on a, for each client you're working, you might be on a panel with other firms, as you said, because you mentioned about comparing the, the the costs or you know the work being delivered by different firms so I, I guess that's that's a relevant issue for the for, for your clients that's correct you're right um, and many firms won't just employ or engage with one firm of solicitors they will have a number of different providers and often that's so that they can use the specialists in different areas of law because I think many law firms struggle to be experts at every different type of law but it certainly does allow that comparison if you're working with multiple law firms you can see how their rates compare at the different levels you can see how the rates compare for one specialism compared to another um, and just give you a much better feel for you know are you getting value for what you're spending and and understanding the sort of detail behind a bill you know in in the sort of olden days um, you could potentially get a bill that had you know maybe just three numbers on it that would explain you know potentially several hundred pounds worth of expenditure nowadays through an e-billing system you get much more detail much more granularity some would say too much um, and it's actually then you get into the do are you capable of analyzing the data but that's a discussion for a different day yeah, and perhaps that's some of the automation tools, I guess, Gillian, that can come in and help help uh, help firms and client clients with all of that, which I know has been has been happening a lot. Um, Say, so, um, just 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 looking looking ahead a bit. I mean, Chris, are there any other any other observations? I mean, we've talked a little bit about efficiency there, about transparency with clients. Um, you talked about the client relationships earlier. 
Any, any thoughts from yourself, Chris, on trends you've seen, as Gillian's mentioned there about technology and the way things are going in, in terms of the commerciality of firms? The fact is, it's a complex world, particularly at the moment. There is a lot going on. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of changes in the kind of businesses that provide legal services and what their shape will be. Um, we have, I'm sure that there'll continue to be conventional large law firms that are law firms that do work for clients, mainly commercial clients, maybe some private client work as well. But there is going to be an increasing tendency towards the, I think, the multidisciplinary practice that sells a range of services and includes lawyers. The um, development of the accountants moving into the legal sector is entirely predictable. In fact, it might it nearly happened years ago when the Institute of Chartered Accountants suggested to the Law Society that multidisciplinary partnerships should be allowed. And at that stage, the Law Society said no. But the Legal Services Act has changed that. So I suspect in the future there will be specialist firms, say, working for the banking sector, let's say, who will include um, bankers, will include accountants, corporate finance specialists, and lawyers, corporate finance lawyers, and so on. And that's a logical entity to exist, to be the advisory practice for, let's say, a bank, rather than a multi-service practice, which has a whole range of different clients in different sectors. So I think that's an important uh, development, which I think is inevitable in the marketplace, which means that people that um, join the profession now may end up working in a very different type of business to one they actually train in. I think that's right. I, what I saw from doing work on career paths that I was noticing over the last two or three years from research I did on that was exactly that. The career paths were becoming much more, much more varied. I mean, Gillian, you spoke about your career path right at the beginning, as you said, where you started off in a very different world. And and I think you said to me, you said, you know, who knew there was a there was a career path even in towards finance in in the legal sector? I remember when you said when you were beginning your career. So you know, we always like to give our listeners some actions to think about at the end of these podcasts. Um, I guess one one action could be just to, just to think about, okay, if you're interested in, in maths, in numbers, you're quite financial, and in, in perhaps you might even be listening to this, doing, a, doing some type of qualification that's a financial qualification rather than a legal qualification, is just perhaps look at some websites and just sort of firms and just explore and think, okay, how can I think about my skill set applying into the world of the legal sector in the way, you know, Chris and Gillian, you, you've mentioned that this is going to be such an interesting um, sort of multi-career path, multi-skilled sort of future world in, in the legal sector. So I think one one thing I would say there to everyone listening is think about if you, even if you're quite financial or, or maths orientated, how does that fit into the legal sector? Look, look around some, some websites, look around some of the stories on the internet you, you read, as you say, Chris, about the way that the legal sectors, the way that the legal sector is is changing, and that there are there are more different types of firms coming in. You know, imagine imagine you join PwC but end up doing something in legal work or in the commercial side of legal work, as you as you say, um, Gillian and Chris. Um, Gillian, I'll, I'll come to come to you first. Any any final thoughts from from yourself, sort of looking ahead and and uh, say thinking of your role, the way it's developed, what you see in the future as well. I think, as you say, you know, I think it's um, 
opening people's eyes to the different opportunities within a law firm and really kind of thinking about how any um, organisation can run and understand that it's not just lawyers that work in a law firm um, and that, you know, there's a finance department, there's, you know, I've mentioned there's an HR department. So, you know, people that come in and, and make sure that the lawyers um, have got the support that they require and the training that they need. Um, you've also got a marketing department. And actually, I've seen quite a number of lawyers over the years who've moved from um, practicing law to actually helping more with that client relationship piece um, because they perhaps enjoyed that more than the law itself. So, you know, there are um, opportunities to transfer, you know, even if you start out as a lawyer, you know, there are there are other careers that people move on to. Um, and I think, you know, we'll see increasingly in the future um, the sort of IT and technology um, coming much more to the fore in the um, in a law firm, not just, you know, the support for the computers and the technology that we use, but also thinking about that innovation piece um, and, you know, using technology IT skills to actually support the lawyers in the work that they're doing. Document aut automation is one that kind of springs to mind, but there's there's going to be lots of other things that I've never even heard of um, that will come to the fore over the years. So lots of different careers. It strikes me that that is already impacting a lot on your financial side of things. You mentioned the billing and all the systems, the extra nets you often set up so that the clients can have visibility on a daily basis of costs. So, you know, I guess that's always really coming to the finance world. And Chris, a final, a final thought from you. Any, any other final thoughts looking ahead? Yeah, I think Julian's absolutely right. Careers can be very flexible. And I think um, if I was training as a lawyer or as an accountant, I certainly wouldn't assume that that's where I'm going to end up necessarily. Um, one traditional path for both lawyers and accountants has been to join a firm, train in a firm, become expert. Some will stay, but some will go outside and they'll do something else. They may go to an incorporated business and work in a legal department or work in finance and move outside the profession. Or they may go and do something entirely different, like train people or go back to university and um, become a lecturer. I think the professions themselves are going to be a lot more flexible as well. Um, and it's interesting, if you go into a law firm and you look at some of the people that are practicing law, you will often find that they've had other professional paths before. Um, one particular firm, I know a lot of its solicitors have been ship's captains because the firm specializes in mercantile, uh, in maritime law. Um, I've met um, a firm with a couple of airline captains who are now qualified as lawyers, firms where there are doctors who've qualified as lawyers and now practicing medical negligence and things like that. So the professions themselves aren't necessarily where you're going to stop in that profession. There's, there's movement between them. I think that's such a positive note to end on, Chris. Chris and Gillian, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much um, for your time today. And thank you for listening. Thank you.